0: And uh, we're going to get, let's pray. Jesus, we uh, commit this time in your hands. And as we not only enter into this moment of unpacking your word and seeking revelation from you, um, but as we enter into this new season, uh, historically called Lent, a time of reflection, consideration of everything, Jesus, you endured from entering into this world to suffering to crucifixion, to death, and then ultimately resurrection. God, we pray that this season would be a season of revelation, deeper, greater revelation of who you are, and ultimately transformation, God, that we would become new people, different people than who we currently are. Uh, God, we want our affections to be sharpened and and more alive for you. God, at the same time, we ask that you would help those areas in our lives that we are bound and held enslaved to addictions or actions or attitudes that are just not consistent with who you are or your kingdom that you've come to bring. God, we pray that you would help us to grow up out of those things and grow into sons and daughters that look like you. And so we devote not only again this time, but also this season in your hands uh, to do a fresh work in our midst. Uh, help me now to unpack and to communicate and speak forth the words that you have uh, for us to learn and hear and grow um, in this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. we all set. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So as I mentioned, uh, this is historically a season that's typically called Lent. Again, it's not a season that's categorized within the Bible, but it's a time that just kind of we come into uh, preparing, thinking about, considering Um, a little space of time before we enter into Easter or otherwise known as Resurrection Sunday, the time in which we think about and consider Jesus' death on the cross for us and ultimately his resurrection. Um, Which, by the way, we we actually have little um, mini-Easters every single week. It's one of the reasons why, if you maybe didn't know this, why we meet on a Sunday morning every single week because Jesus rose again the first day of the week. It's a way of reminding us, re-anchoring us, uh, restoring us, into the, the story that we belong. Um, why? Why is that important? Uh, it's important because we have a, a constant stream, a uh, flow of propaganda that is, is, has nothing to do with the gospel, has nothing to do with Jesus, constantly flooding into our ears and our eyes and our senses from every angle, um, and it, it's super easy to drift from the story, from the plot line of the gospel. And this is our way of re-anchoring ourselves into the plot line of of who God is and what God's called us to be and how he calls us to live. So um, this is the season, again, like I mentioned, as we move into this, (laughs) moving up to Easter Sunday. So begin to pray about that. Begin to ask God what he wants to speak to you uh, in your your life in this season of time. I I truly believe, um, my my hope and my prayer is that this would be a season of renewal and, and hope. For us, where God just makes himself even more real to us than like ever before. Um, We need these moments because, again, um, just out of curiosity, as we move into this new little series, I want to ask just out of curiosity, how many of you have heard about or are somewhat familiar with the story of Jesus' death and resurrection? Raise your hand. You've you've ever heard of it, right? Raise your hand. Anybody like not ever heard of this? Okay, I didn't think so. The reason why I ask that is kind of a little bit of a case study is every one of you that raise your hand, which is 100% of you, are in grave danger, uh, pun intended, um, of, of somehow missing the story because of overfamiliarity. We become overly familiar with the story, and it loses its, its power and its potency. Um, one of the key ways you can identify that in your life is you hear the story of Jesus' death, resurrection, and you just see through it, becomes opaque, has no power, no potency, no transformational effect upon your life. That's, that's, that should be a warning sign for all of us to just step back and realize, Jesus, help me, because I, I want to I live into the story. I want it to become something that reorients and reframes and shocks me out of my sinful ways and my proclivities and, reorients me according to your ways and according to your purposes. And, and so my hope, my prayer for you guys, specifically for us as a church family, that, that this season would become transformational for all of us in, in, this, in this journey uh, to the cross and then ultimately to an empty grave, which is, which is pretty rad. So that being said, what I want to do right now is I want to begin to just jump in and take a look at this. Now, um, this whole series that we're looking at, we're basically calling Seven Words from the Cross – are a series of seven phrases or statements or words that Jesus speaks just prior to his death. Um, again, a little bit of backstory. We, we know that up until this point in the story of Jesus' life, and again, we've kind of like jumped over the majority of Jesus' life, and we're just focusing on the last few hours of Jesus' life on the earth prior to his resurrection um, over the next seven weeks. So over the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at each phrase kind of in its context and understanding that so to understand how we got here is the life of Jesus was one for you know the past 32 plus 33 years uh, he was doing ministry really only for about three year period of time but uh, he was helping people doing good if you know anything about the story of Jesus you know that it begins in obscurity he's born in a manger you guys know all the backstory there and then uh, he begins to kind of come out Uh, In terms of doing his ministry, helping people, Jesus was not only teaching important truths about God, about the kingdom of God that's beginning to come and undermine the kingdoms that are already in place, which would have been Herod, if you're familiar with history, or Caesar... Uh, of Rome, or even Caiaphas, who was kind of the religious leader, Um, he was a very secularized type of of a Jewish guy that kind of ran the entire institution called the temple, all of these things were kind of paganized, they became very far from the heart of God, and Jesus is saying, I'm launching a new kingdom, and I'm inviting anybody who's broken, or messed up, or ruined, or maimed, or on the outskirts of anything, or in the obscurity, or in the margins, or alienated, or feeling lost, or broken, or just unaccepted. I'm inviting you to come be part of this, this whole shindig that I'm, I'm beginning. He, he likes it too, like a, like a party. He says, it's like a party that's thrown for all the wrong people. Like, this is amazing what Jesus is doing. And um, Jesus became very popular, as you would imagine, because of his ministry. And not only the things that he was teaching, but the things he was doing. Because uh, we see many stories. Like, that's what the gospel accounts are, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're familiar with those. They tell the stories of what Jesus not only taught, but also what he did. Um, Jesus is feeding people, uh, people that are hungry, right? So he's kind of like providing this uh, welfare system for people that don't have anything, and he's taking care of them. He's also healing people. He's kind of like a, a walking, one stop shop, you know, like helping human being, right? Just doing everything good for other people. Jesus is uh, also forgiving people of their sin, um, which, is, which is shocking because nobody else in the entire Bible does this. Jesus does. Nobody else in the entire world actually did this, right? This is one of the things that makes Jesus really distinct from every other teacher. Um, good teachers are, are different than, than someone that goes around like Jesus and says, hey, by the way, your sins are forgiven. So with those phrases like that that Jesus said actually began to really get him in trouble with the religious system. For one reason, at least alone, was you had a religious system that was in Jerusalem, and um, they kind of owned and sort of operated this entire uh, mega temple, right, on the Temple Mount, and they had this whole system uh, set in place. So if you were a Jew, you did have a lot of money, and you needed forgiveness of sin. You needed to have things healed in your life. Uh, you would pay uh, large sums of money to go and get your sacrifice, and then you bring it to the priest, and the priest would then announce over you, forgiven before God. Uh, you remember the story. Jesus goes in the Temple Mount, and he kind of casts out all the money changers, and he's kind of fighting for the poor and the neglected and the forgotten. It's one of the reasons why we love Jesus. Um, But we see even within that context, Jesus is going around, not on the Temple Mount, in other places in obscurity. and He's like, hey, by the way, you're forgiven of your sin. Do You realize what Jesus is doing. He's not just like making announcements. He's also saying, you don't need to go to the temple. I've come to replace that whole thing. So let's say, for example, put yourself in the context of Mega power, right? You've got lots of wealth. Lots of people are under you. You've got all this power at your fingertips, and you run this mega system called the Temple Mount, and then you discover this, like, obscure preacher off in the you know, northern part of the country of Galilee pronouncing forgiveness of sins. In other words, they're siphoning them away from the temple and bringing them to Jesus. What do you do? What do you do when someone threatens your livelihood and your mega wealth? What do you what do you do that person? You no know, any guesses you kill them right right so you, you just kill in case you're wondering like you kill people like that's that's what happens now if you don't have the power to kill or you're too afraid of the consequences of killing meaning going to jail you you do what everybody else in modern california america we do we we we, we assassinate someone by way of public opinion right so we do we just we just kill someone so if they pose a threat that's what they did to jesus so here's jesus who literally gives himself over to the system, the the machine itself, and he allows himself to be ground by the machine willingly. This is what we just read. He's on the cross, in the jaws of the big mechanical monster that's about to grind him. And in the jaws of the monster, Jesus prays, Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I want you to just feel that. These are the last words of Jesus. So let's pause real quick. If you knew, I'm going to get a little morbid here, uh, carry on in that like trajectory. Uh, if you knew by four o'clock this afternoon, you're going to die, right? Um, like what, what would you do? If you, you know you're going to die. You'd probably get some things in order, relationships that are out of whack or messed up or broken. You would do what you can to sit down with that person and be like, hey, listen, we got to work this out. I'm going I'm to die at 4 o'clock, and I, I, I don't. Or you would sit down with your son or your daughter or someone that you know that it's, it's all going to come to this closure, and you're going to sit down with them, and you're going to tell them probably the most important things that you can summarize in your life to impart to them, right? Jesus knows he's going to die. And what we're going to read over the next seven weeks are a recording of his phrases that he says, knowing that death is imminent, and unpack them and try to understand them and let God breathe new life, hopefully, into our lives and hopefully become renewed by these phrases and these words. So I thought it'd be kind of fun just think about some other words of other famous people um, just prior to their death, so I kind of did a little Google search and found some of them. Um, Harriet Tubman just before she died she said swing low sweet chariot Winston Churchill uh, who lived a very um, unboring life I mean again kind of winning World War II it's, it's pretty it's pretty important and uh, he goes I'm bored with it all and then, he, then he, he's gone right Buddha um, famous Buddha he says um, let the Dharma which is uh, his, his teachings and uh, the disip- discipline that I have taught you uh, be your teacher because uh, his his followers are like really concerned the uh, the Buddha's going to die and uh, who's going to lead us in the wake of his, his absence? And uh, he sits down with him and he says, all individual things will pass away, strive on um, untiringly. Which, again, I, I just find that really fascinating. Here's a really significant leader, um, knowledgeable, is an incredible, like, m- mindful philosopher. Um, but what I want you to at least notice, what's different between Buddha and, and even Jesus, Buddha offers really good advice. That's what this is. It's advice. And one of the things we've been trying to help you be aware of over the past several months is there's a a big difference between advice, good advice, and uh, good news. Good advice um, has limited mileage. Good advice is what people tell you and you live according to. That's that's good advice. Good advice is, hey, let the teachings and instructions I've given to you and the disciplines that I've shown you be the thing that, that carry you in my absence. In other words, work as hard as you can. That's what he says in the last line. Strive untiringly. But here's my question, and, and this is why I want to make the distinction with regard to advice and, and good news. What happens when you tire? What happens when you're exhausted? Anybody exhausted? What happens when you're filled with anxiety? What happens when you cannot take another step forward? What, what, do you, what then? You, you're left with insignificance or Failure. And then you carry the weight of that failure and insignificance. And you feel that. Uh, that's good advice. Advice, like I said, is, 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 it can be good. It can take you somewhere, but it has limited mileage. Good news, on the other hand, is this is something I've done for you in your place, in your weakness, in your anxiety, in your status of incapableness. I've done this for you on your behalf. Receive it. That's what good news is. This is what Jesus offers. This is what makes Jesus totally unparalleled to any other religious leader in history. Is Jesus offers good news of, here's what I've done. And then the recordings of his last words begin to give us incredible insight into what he's done for us. So with that being said, we see that several of Jesus' words, so the phrases and ideas that can be summarized that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks are seven words that have to do with forgiveness longing, hope, victory, uh, affection, belonging, uh, and as well as anguish, that these are all words that Jesus addresses, or phrases, or concepts, or ideas that Jesus addresses, that we'll be looking at over the ne- series of next seven weeks. So today we're going to be taking a look at the subject of forgiveness that Jesus addresses, that were kind of encapsulated in those words that we said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, which Immediately, what this tells us is that there's something not right with humanity. What I want to do, real quick, next slide. I want to take a look at just kind of that little section of uh, Father, forgive them for they know, it, know not what they do, and kind of break it down into two little sections. So, number one, we'll take a look at, and right now look at it, is the Jesus' relational position, and that's this is kind of encapsulated in the word that Jesus says, Father. He says, Father. So, when Jesus prays, he says to God. He doesn't address him as, like, you know, cosmic ruler of some odd universe somewhere out there. He doesn't address him as Mother Earth. He, addra- he addresses him as Father. And again, I realize that there are some, like, challenges in today's culture of, like, calling to question gender and uh, even the usage of the word Father. Um, Jesus identifies him as Father, and there's a reason for that. Um, again, if anything, if anything, at, at minimum, what it identifies is a deep sense of intimacy, a deep sense of belonging, a placement. Jesus is not out of place. He's not, there's no cold indifference between Jesus and this entity or deity that's somewhere out there in the cosmos that there's this deep connectedness between Jesus and, the, and, and God. And he calls him Father. That's really important to identify. The second thing that we see is that Jesus' request for healing over humanity's broken relational position. So first of all, we know with regard to Jesus, he's got deep relational connectedness to the Father. There's nothing for which Jesus has to apologize to God for. I just you to think about that for a moment. We, all of us, because we're all affected by what we're going to look at in just a moment here, all of us are broken. We are you know, part of broken relationships. Some of us are the cause of broken relationships, right? Uh, some of us are the recipients of broken relationships, all of us, to some degree, have been a part of this. Um, Jesus, in this context, has nothing of which to apologize to the Father for. He's in perfect harmony with the Father. There's nothing there. And then he goes on to identify that humanity, on the other hand, is not in the same position as he is. On the other hand, humanity needs forgiveness. And it's, again, there's the immediate context of. You know, whether it be the soldier who's drilling the nail into Jesus' hands or the Jewish leaders that are kind of embodied around there scoffing, mocking, whatever, um, or whoever. The point of the matter is, is that most scholars would all identify and agree that this is kind of like a, like a like ripple effect of throwing a rock into a pond. It has the initial, like, uh, waves, but then it kind of telescopes all the way out to all of humanity, that all humanity has a problem with God that needs rectification, needs healing. And it's is what Jesus prays. He requests for healing. Forgiveness is the word that we use uh, over all of humanity's broken relational position. And this is encapsulated in the word or the phrase, forgive them. Uh, for what and why? What this really clearly identifies is that humanity has a problem with its maker. Right? We'll talk more about this in just a moment. And, and the solution for that problem, apparently, according to Jesus, is forgiveness. Forgiveness, something has happened to bring about this rectification with humanity that's drifted, it's gone astray, it's gone its own direction uh, as a part of a system of directional misconduct or whatever. And His prayer is to immediately circumvent that and to say, "I'm, I'm praying, I'm asking Father for healing that humanity, in its waywardness, in its ignorance, in its affectedness by sin." Would be brought back into wholeness with you. So, with that being said, we have to actually kind of ask the question why? Why and what has happened to humanity that has kind of caused this? And the, the word that we'll look at now is just the word that many of us don't really like to talk about, and it has, and I would even say, it has varying degrees of baggage attached to it. It's the word sin. All right, And we'll talk more about that in a moment, but before we do, is I'm just going to let the Bible Project people do a really good job at explaining, I don't know, four minutes or three minutes or however long it is, um, a biblical construct of what sin is. Because I'm going to presuppose that most of us, in fact, I would say that all of us, we know we've heard the phrase sin used before, right? We, to some degree, at least have some version or idea of what we think sin is. I'm going to suggest to you that mostly many of us have what I would describe as a caricature version of what sin is and I'll, I'll i'll try to point that out to you in just a moment here but what i want to do is at least reorient our mind to think about this terminology of sin in the context of of how the bible when it speaks of the word sin how does the bible think about sin um, when it talks about the word sin so here we go roll it
1: most people assume the bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are and that's true It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate. Because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin, this is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hare and not kata, that is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to kata your way, miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God a sacred being who represents the creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so sin is a failure to be truly human. But there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security. In his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one and he says, I have sinned, I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom, and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother, and so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, Chata is crouching at the door. It wants you. But you can rule over it. So in these stories, Sin, or moral failure, is depicted as this wild, hungry animal that wants to consume humans. And we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says, sin lives in us, so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing, and it's that deep, selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. This is why in the Bible, the story of Jesus is such good news. He's depicted as the creator become a truly human one who did not fail to love God and others. That is, he did not sin. And yet, he took responsibility for humanity's history of failure. He lived for others and he died for their sins. And he was raised from the dead to offer them the gift of his life that covers for their failures. Or in the words of the apostles, he committed no sin, yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to our sins and live to do what is right. And that's the story behind the biblical word for sin.
0: So I want to talk real quick, again, addressing some caricatures of sin, so... Uh, we can think of it this way, again, why this is important is because, like I said, I think in our culture, when we talk about sin, we talk about maybe some form of caricature. Why does this matter? Because, let's say, for example, if you, know, you go down to Pismo Beach and you're there walking down the pier, there's that you know, dude out there, he's like, doodling your face. You sit down, he draws a photo of you, and you look at it, everyone else is laughing, and you're just, you're like humiliated because your nose is really big, and your ears are large, and everyone else laughs at it because they think, oh my gosh, it's they spot on. And in your mind, you're like, that's not spot on. I definitely don't have that big a nose. I don't look that ugly. Um, and, And you're offended by that because it's not an accurate depiction of you. And I think we do the same thing with the word sin all the time. We don't, present an accurate depiction of this, or we create some form of a depiction of it that's highly, uh, uh, you know, distorted, that does not pay honor to God, or even to the words that God chooses to use in what we would describe as uh, his his God-breathed text. So with that being said, here's some ways in which sin is caricatured. Sin is caricatured when it's individualized to only represent personal misdeeds, failures, and actions. I think this is one of the biggest caricatures, when we only reduce sin to just down to what you do or don't do, right? Uh, meaning you did X, Y, and Z, therefore you sin, you are a sinner, therefore that's it. That, that's not inaccurate, but it's not the whole story. So it's just a caricature. So, Or sin is, a caric, sin is caricatured when it's weaponized uh, in order to condescend others. And we see this a lot of times. Religious people love to do this. They kind of weaponize it. So they pick a particular pet sin that they particularly really hate, and they kind of get their little tribe and team together, and they all wear the same jerseys, and they figure out who has not dressed like us and act like us or think like us, and therefore we're going to weaponize our Bibles to attack them. And this is, it's a caricature. It's taking sin and picking and choosing which ones that we particularly um, don't struggle with and attack those that are not like us. So uh, the third one is when it's categorized, by self-righteous individuals to justify themselves to condemn others. So very similar to weaponizing. But again, it's the idea of that somewhere along the way, someone is doing the categorizing, right? Did you ever notice that? It's some human being that's like, I'm going to categorize. I'm going to put this sin at the very highest top of the level. We're going to make this the main point of you know, alienating and attacking everybody else and the other sins at the very bottom. We Every group does this, by the way. This is not just a religious right thing. This is also anybody that that chooses, picks and chooses these types of things. This is the problem because it's a caricature. So what what is sin? This is where I want to kind of give you some bullet points of kind of the summary of the video. Next slide. Um, sin is, if I can put it into bullets. Uh, next slide. Please. Coming up. There we go. So sin, you can think of it this, this way. Three Ps for you to think about. It. Number one, sin as participation in doing what is wrong. So yes, it does involve you as an individual doing something wrong and or omitting something good. We actually have a law in America. I don't know if you know this or not. It's called the Good Samaritan Law. Did you know that? So if you see someone walking down the street and they kind of fall down and they start going into cardiac arrest or whatever, and you just walk by, you're, like, drinking your latte or you're, like, texting because you didn't even know um, that they actually are, like, having a seizure in the middle of the street because you're on your phone texting, um, um, you can actually pay a a fine for that or, you know, be charged with that. It's called the Good Samaritan Law. You, you, You saw somebody doing something that was life-threatening, and you, and you turned the other way. You weren't being a good Samaritan. Um, um, so participation in doing something that's wrong and or omitting something that's good. Uh, sin as not only participation, but also a power. So I think in many evangelical circles, it gets limited to only number one. Participation in doing wrong or omission of what is good. Okay? Um, but sin is bigger than that. It's bigger than just doing something or not doing something. It's also a power, the way the New Testament describes it, of which humanity is enslaved by. Um, we have a word that we use in modern circles of um, addiction. It's very similar to this. Have you ever sat back and kind of like, examined yourself in like, a moment of transparency and are like, why do I do that? Why do I act this way? Why do I talk this way? Why do I do the things that I do? Why, do, why am I not able to walk away from certain things or not do the good that I really think I know is right? Why? Um, the answer might actually be found that you are a slave to something. A slave to something. Um, this is power. This is the power that it wields over you. You need deliverance, you need something beyond you that has the power to leverage you out of your. Enslavement. This is what Jesus comes to do. And again, this, uh, this is where advice doesn't help you. Advice requires motivation. It requires good disciplines. Again, re- advice is not bad. It's good, but it's limited mileage. What we need is good news to have someone to come along and say, lift us out of this whole situation. Uh, if you don't believe me, uh, I'll, I'll give you a case study or something that you can do on your own, right? Um, you, can, you can actually try this at home. Next time your phone pings, right, whether it's a text or, you know, uh, whatever sound your phone makes because your Instagram is pinging you, um, I'm I'm encouraging you, right? This is not a law. I'm encouraging you, do not look at it. Do not pick up your phone. Do not touch your phone for 24 hours. Somebody may be like, oh, my gosh. Like, I can't live. You are addicted, You are under the power. Now, that's kind of a funny one. You're not going to die or go to hell over that. Maybe not. But the point of the matter is the point of the matter is that that, that's kind of a good example. Like, what you will do if you are enslaved to that is you may be that jerk that's standing in line at Trader Joe's who can't even look the clerk in the eyes because you're so darn important, you all got to look at your phone. You're like, he's pretty offensive. Whatever. But the point that I'd make is this it's a power. It's a power that maybe you are controlled by, that maybe Jesus wants to deliver you from. It's a power that you're powerless to walk away from and to say no to. It's a power. Sin is not just an action or a misdeed or a failure to do something that's good. It's a power that you constantly cave into and surrender to. Thirdly, is we see, it's a presence. One scholar describes it as a contagion right, like a disease, right? We're living in the world right now and we have the coronavirus, whatever the technical term of it is. You know, a lot of people are kind of living under the fear of that. It's a contagion that all humanity has been infected by. And it's not just like victimized status, like somehow some, I got infected by this disease called sin. No, we play into it. We also infect others. It's a contagion. So it's a participation, power, and a presence that our only hope is deliverance. And this is where this prayer of Jesus is mind-blowing. As we finish up this final thought, I want to uh, just take a look at some quotes from uh, people that have stated more on this than I can even in better ways articulate, but Dorothy Sayers, the famous writer, she wrote that sin is a deep interior dislocation at the very center of human personality. Think about that. Interior dislocation. Dude, Those words are so powerful. Uh, uh, We've all had moments where, like, something's dislocated in our body, right? Something's not right. If you are a sport player, right, you've at some point dislocated something in your body. And and it may not be life-threatening. You may be able to go on for hours, weeks, you know, months, life, but you're in a lot of pain. You're constantly thinking about an interior dislocation. W.H. Auden says an error uh, bred in the bone. Uh, Dorothy Martin, who's a child psychologist who recently passed away a few years ago, she said sin is a powerful force that grips us beyond the sovereignty of our wills. You think you're in control of your life? There's a parasite that has every one of us, and it lives off of us. I'm not trying to sound weird or conspiratorial. It's It's a fact. It's what the Bible would describe as this power, this contagion of sin that manipulates and forces and lies to us and propagandizes our lives and thoughts about God and who we are and how we should treat other people or mistreat other people. It's this thing that is at the very core and hijacks the sovereignty of our wills. And one author whom I love a lot, her name is Fleming Rutledge, who wrote this book that I've just kind of been reading yearly. It's a really thick, big book, but it's so good on the crucifixion. She says, that sin, theologically understood, shapes our personalities in harmful ways, so listen carefully if any of these shoes fit, making us perfectionists, procrastinators, deceivers, abusers, addicts, schemers, bullies, fanatics, adulterers, and all the other manifestations that afflict the human species from sources beyond our control. The point that I would make is in keeping in line with the prayer of Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's something wrong with humanity that needs healing. Lastly, I want to focus on the last little slide here and think about a little bit of Jesus' mission and, again, bring us back to the very beginning of the text itself, that the healing of humanity's broken relational position is ultimately forgiveness, that Jesus seems to believe in his prayer, That the way forward is not somehow better education or more self help or another seminar or more uh, motivation or more picking yourself up by your own bootstraps and advancing. That Jesus seems to suggest that the way forward is forgiveness. I don't know how that resonates with you because we all live in varying degrees of deep fractured, broken relationships. And the way forward is forgiveness. The way forward, Jesus is recognizing for humanity is to have this rift that's between human beings and God, and the hemorrhaging that's kind of been caused as a result of that to be healed. Um. It's important to note that from Jesus' ministry and his life and the things that he says and the things that he does, uh, he's, a, he's a deeply biblical person, meaning he was living within the Bible story. He was very, very familiar with the framework. Each one of us, you know, most of us are, are Americans here. I don't want to presuppose that everybody is, but most of us are Americans here, which means we have a backstory, which we live according to, which says you know, you're free, you can do anything you want, act any way that you want. That's not the story that Jesus lived according to. He was an American, by the way. Some of you are like, shocking. Like, I thought he was. Like, nope, nope, not. And he wasn't even white, by the way. Like, I thought he was white and long hair, man bun. He was like a cool hippie guy. No, he was actually like middle Eastern, and dark skin. But the point of the matter is, back on track, is that Jesus lived according to this biblical story. And one of the biblical narratives that Jesus was deeply familiar with was this uh, story, the backstory that Jesus' mission presupposes the three fun fundamental premises from this biblical story. Number one, the fall. He recognized that humanity, um, in the context of Adam and Eve, the kind of prototypical human beings, they made this uh, collective decision that we will decide for ourselves our own fate. Rather than allow the Father, who loves us, who gave himself for us, who walks with us in the garden, um, who gave us all things, we will decide our own fate. We will choose to eat from whatever tree that we choose to eat from. Uh, but then the second thing that led to kind of all humanity's solidarity, so it wasn't just like Adam and Eve and like the rest of humanity like, oh, we're so righteous and they blew it and we stand with God. It would be awesome if that was the case. It wasn't the case. We are all standing in solidarity, meaning we are all crippled by the contagion. And then thirdly, this cosmic struggle between the forces of sin, evil, and death, and I love this, the unconquerable, if I could even add a word to that, the lovingly unconquerable purposes of God. So I don't know how you think about this, but this is the story which Jesus lived, and we see finally in the New Testament kind of the unpacking of this. In the next slide, I want to just wrap it up with some final passages, and I'm going to read through these real quickly. If you want, you could uh, either text me later, and I'd be happy to get you the slides, or you can just take photos of them and whatnot. But I want to talk a little bit briefly about this kind of malady slash remedy, because the malady obviously is sin, brokenness, and rebellion, uh, but the remedy Jesus is saying is, forgiveness. father, forgive them. And the whole entire Bible, I don't, I don't know how you think about God, but what I want you to think about is every New Testament writer says the same thing. That man's, humanity's greatest need is to be made right with God and be made right with other people. We, we we might take offense to that. It might be like, I'd rather have a God that kind of just caters to me. Well, really what we're saying is that I, I want the position of Adam and Eve, which, again, talk about limited mileage, led to death, or the path that Jesus is offering, and he says, this is the way forward, forgiveness. L- listen to how every New Testament, yeah, at least the New Testament authors I'm going to read, um, interweave this... Two-fold reality of sin and forgiveness together. Uh, Matthew, uh, chapter 1, uh, very first book in the New Testament, starts off like this. Mary shall bear a son, uh, and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, so right there, in the very, very opening lines of the entire biblical revelation of Jesus is that whoever Jesus is, whoever he is, no matter what you think of him, Great teacher, kind of quasi hippie, progressive liberal—you know, a guy that's going to help you know reframe humanity. Whatever he is, he will save their people from their sin. I, again, I, I'm, I didn't write the text; I'm just showing it to you. you have to you have to deal with it as we think through it. And secondly, Mark chapter two, verse ten: the Son of Man, Jesus. Whoever he is, he has authority on earth to forgive sins. So again, whatever you think of him, whoever he is, he has authority to actually. Blot out, wipe away, forgive, cancel sins. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 76, uh, John the Baptist will be called the prophet of the Most High, and he will go before the Lord and prepare the ways, his ways uh, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and forgiveness for their sins. And then it ends with this little section, to guide their feet into the way of peace. That God's ultimate aim is not just simply to cancel people's sins. Please know this. It's to bring you into the way of peace so that your life is no longer dislocated from the Father, but actually rightly located in the right relationship with him. This is how much he loves you. And then the end of the story of the Gospel of Luke says, as Jesus said to them, it is written that the Christ which suffers, referring to himself, and suffer and die and rise again the third day from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Next slide. So again, uh, we're reminded of the importance of this. John Uh, the next, the fourth gospel writer, he says this, the next day John saw Jesus coming forward, and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, Book of Hebrews, as we kind of enter into some of the larger uh, nuanced topic of this throughout the New Testament, says this, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification of sins. So whatever Jesus did, whatever whatever he did, whatever he came to do, it was definitely far more than just feeding a bunch of hungry people and or validating a bunch of people in their brokenness and their alienation. It had to do with making purification of sins. Again, why is this a big deal? Apparently, apparently, according to biblical writers, it's a big deal. And if we minimize this, then we're, we're, we're really missing something intrinsic to our health and healing and wholeness and salvation. And then finally, in the Book of Revelation, chapter one, says this. And again, I completely omitted Paul, but Paul is a whole nother. Like, you know, we'd be here for another three hours if I was just doing that. So, you're welcome. I'm not going to go through Paul. You can do it on your own. But um, Revelation chapter one says this: From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. This is the image of Jesus that we're presented over. And over and over again, because just in case we forget it, just in case we are inclined to reduce Jesus to nothing more than a good teacher, the New Testament is constantly there fighting us to resist that temptation to see him as far more than what we can ever imagine, as actually the remedy to our great malady of sin, death, and destruction. And he says, I've come to give you life by canceling, forgiving your sins. And there on the cross, we see Jesus being nailed by his enemies, not calling down fire to consume them, but praying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So in closing, I don't know how this resonates with you. My hope would be that you would see the depth of God's love for you that is here to remake you beginning by repairing this breach, this gap between you and God, which is what Jesus says forgiveness, to repair, to bring healing. So what does that mean for us? It means we receive it. We, we didn't earn it. We didn't, this not based upon our merit. This is not us, you know, striving as hard as we can to get God's attention. This is us doing something so in line with the contagion That we are all infected by, and not stopping, the unstoppable love of God to forgive us. So what remains for us is to receive that, to receive that, to step into that, and to let that begin to remake the sum total of who we are, and that reshapes how we think about other people, other relationships that we are at odds with. This is what it means to be a Christian, guys. It's it's hard. I'm not pretending to act like it's, it's easy. It's not. It's super hard. But this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We follow Jesus as he has launched this new life in us, beginning with the forgiveness of sins. And so some of us have some relationships that are just totally out of rye. And many of us, we spend a whole lot of time thinking, processing, how do I fix this? How do I make this right? How do I get this taken care of? How do I eradicate this person from my life? I would suggest to you, rather than spending all this energy, exhausting your efforts, trying to figure that out, do one thing. Sit and soak in the love of God that says, I forgive you. So much so until your heart is reshaped. Then, you can begin to even think about that. But begin with the statement, forgiven. I don't know how you think about God. My hope is that you would at least begin to know how He thinks about you. He loves you, He's given Himself for you, and He invites you into new life. So let's all stand. We're going to respond. Worship team will lead us in a song. We will go to the table. Uh, communion is this amazing opportunity to come to the table to eat the bread to drink the cup to be reminded that no matter how broken or messed up or ruined you are what type of a mouth you have or what type of a thought life you have and how perverted or corrupt it is there's space for you at the table